You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Sherry. Four guests this week over two segments, four excellent guests. First up, Jim Trotter and Steve Weish of NFL Media. Those are two gentlemen. If you're an NFL fan, you're very familiar with. You see them on the NFL Network quite often. They are on this podcast to talk about the season ahead as well as their new podcast, Huddle and Flow. Huddle and Flow. Check that out with Jim Trotter and Steve Weish. And we go through all sorts of things during our opening segment on uh, what they expect from their podcast to um, a real discussion on NFL player activism and what these guys expect uh, during games, pregame, postgame, what they expect the public reaction to be. Teams that may surprise in the NFL in 2020, the impact of Tom Brady heading to Tampa Bay. Uh, Again, Jim Trotter, Steve Weish, two of the best at what they do when it comes to NFL coverage. They're followed by Kavitha Davidson, who uh, works with me at The Athletic, the co-host of The Lead, the daily podcast there, as well as Jessica Luther, well-known author and writer in sports. They are the co-authors of Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. And we discuss um, what is uh, what is in their book, the notion of uh, your conscious versus your fandom, and what is a sports fan you're... Uh, maybe sometimes you look the other way on um, because you um, you enjoy the games, but maybe don't want to sort of deal with some of the harsh realities of sport. And um, a conversation that I, I really appreciate them having on um, what it's like to be an outsider in the sports media because of your gender or race and whether true diversity can be achieved in the sports media in the future. So two segments, four guests Jim Trotter, Steve Weish, Kavitha Davidson, and Jessica Luther coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. One note before we get going, had a little bit of technical difficulties in the Jim Trotter, Steve Weish podcast. So uh, at least with my questions, it uh, it might sound like I'm on the phone. So apologies for that. It should uh, get much better for the Kavitha and Jessica Luther interview. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Jim Trotter and Steve Weish are reporters for NFL Media, where they frequently appear on the NFL Network. They um, are the co-hosts of a new podcast, Huddle and Flow, which they say they will call on their experiences as two black men with 40-plus years combined covering the NFL to bring listeners unfiltered, enlightened, enlightening, and entertaining conversations about important off-the-field issues involving the league. I will say this is the second time we have taped this now because I screwed up and called it Hustle and Flow. It is Huddle and Flow, and there you go. The idiot American-Canadian, once again, screwing up an intro. Steve Weish and Jim Trotter, if you are NFL fans, um, you have read their work for very for many, many years. Um, you've seen them on NFL media. People who know, um, listen to this podcast know Jim Trotter is a longtime colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite colleagues. And uh, I, I just I, I think the world of the guy. So I'm so happy to have Jim back and Steve on the sports media podcast. Jim, uh, I want to start with you. Um, how would you describe this podcast? And in a very crowded sports podcast space, um, how do you approach trying to sort of um, be something unique and different for the NFL audience? Uh, well, Richard, first off, thanks for having us. I think um, to answer that question, it, it's really simple. It's just me being me and Steve being Steve and being as authentic and as, as real as we can be uh, for the listeners. It's I kind of talk about it being us taking um, listeners into the green room where sometimes you have those discussions are better than what you might hear on air and they're real and, and sometimes raw. And, and I think that's what listeners are going to get from us where um, I think we're unafraid and unapologetic about, you know, uh, how we feel 
about certain issues and are willing to to dive into it. So that's why I'm so excited about it is it's an opportunity to really say what we feel, what we think, and to highlight, you know, voices that haven't always been heard um, and issues that haven't always been heard from a perspective that's different from many others in our, in our business. What about you, Steve? Yeah, Richard, I mean, you know, J- Jim nailed exactly what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, Jim and I both graduated from Howard University, a uh, historically black college uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Jim was graduating right as I transferred in, so we didn't cross paths there. We've known each other for a long time. And, you know, the fact that, you know, Jim, Jim and I being two, you know, two black men who have seen so much in the years that we've covered sports, not just the NFL, but in terms of how the sport's been covered, about how it's been coached, how players have evolved just over the past four years from when Colin Kaepernick started protesting police brutality to now. Um, We are not afraid to call people, including the NFL and our employers, on the carpet for some of the things that they do and have done. Um, And Jim and I also have the resources and the gravitas and the contacts to get people on the show who will will dig deep and and may not have like uh, beliefs as we do. So so we can have thoughtful conversations. I mean, in our debut episode, we had Washington head coach Ron Rivera, and and I got to tell you, he he bared his soul to us about his health, about the scandals going on in Washington, uh, about the name change, about how he didn't agree with what Colin Kaepernick did initially, and it took him signing Eric Reed down with the Panthers and having conversations with Eric for him to at least open his eyes a little bit. So, you know, I think, I think the respect Jim and I have and what we do, people will feel comfortable in, in talking and in disclosing things that they wouldn't normally say to a lot of people or in, in a news conference. Um, and like I said, Jim and I, since we're, we're graduates from a historically black university, we're going to amplify that. We're going, to, we're going to talk about the importance of HBCUs to the NFL and to American history, and that is one thing very few people in this podcast space can deliver. Steve, I want to stick with you uh, because um, I, I think people in the media business know this. Uh, some people, obviously, who are NFL fans know, but, uh, but probably maybe less than you think. But Steve Weish is the first person to uh, report on um, Colin Kaepernick. Um, and his social activism in game, uh, a couple, you know, when, when that happened, uh, when Colin was with the, the Niners. Um, and now Steve, we, we are going to see a year, I think, and I want to get into a little bit of this with you and Jim, where I think there's going to be significant activism either on the field or in the pregame or in the postgame, given that you were really at the beginning of this to what you're seeing now in, in 2020, I want to just sort of have an open-ended question where, where I ask you sort of how, how you see the, how you see this journey, because you were, you know, you were the reporter there at sort of the beginning of this. And now in 2020, I I wouldn't even predict what the NFL is going to be. We're we're just, it feels like we're in a different universe when it comes to player activism and at, at least how the league feels about things. Yeah. It's weird because, you know, I tell people, you know, we're seeing a lot of the things that have triggered this country stem from Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. But remember, back in 2016, we were in the same climate. I mean, we saw Alton Sterling and Philando Castile get murdered, unarmed black men, get murdered by police on videotape in a, in a contentious presidential election cycle. So the climate was incredibly similar, right? But nobody had stepped out until cap and so when 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 cap decided not to stand for the national anthem um and everything that that ensued he was on an island you know it was him and eric reed and eli harold and and kenny stills uh who who took a knee michael thomas uh who then played for the dolphins very few people would speak out about it so fast forward uh, well you know a year or two and and jim is, is eloquent in speaking on this is the owners you know, they, they listened to their sponsors and fans and, and went ahead and said, 
we're going to put in an anthem policy because we, we're in such a disagreement with this. And see, now the league's like, hey, well, we've never enforced it. Well, you still put it in because you didn't agree with it, so don't pat yourselves on the back for never enforcing it. That's like having a law for saying weed smoking is illegal and, and, you're, and you're proud because you've never busted anybody for it. And, and so now, though, the, the big difference after the summer of us being locked in our home, so to speak, because of the pandemic and seeing the video footage is you're seeing, you know, more young people, more white people in society, more people of different ethnicities stepping up because they see what, what was wrong and they're listening a little bit. And the NFL is, is taking a step back and Roger Goodell broke ranks from the owners. And instead of being the tail that's been wagged, he actually led in response to a video from players, mind you, but he actually said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to listen to our players. And, you know, you hear him speaking about it. You don't hear many owners speaking about it. So this is where he's actually decided to act like an Adam Silver from the NBA or a commissioner and lead. And, and so the players, are, you know, there's never going to be full trust in the players with Roger Goodell or the NFL. But there is some, I think, breaking of that ice because of Roger Goodell stepping out and breaking ranks with some of these owners who still really aren't cool with some of this activism. They're going along because if they don't, then they'll really be singled out. Um, but, I mean, that, that's kind of the bigger change. You know, and, and Jim is, again, he, he's so eloquent in speaking, especially from the owners, you know, speaking on the owners, you know, I'll, I'll just turn this over to him. Hey, Jim, if you could, as you sort of follow Steve, I, I, I really am curious about your thoughts as to um, – as to what you expect this year um, on the issue of player activism? Oh, um, I expect to see a significant amount of player uh, activism. But, Richard, what's different now is that uh, unlike three years ago, four years ago, there seems to be more of a partnership between the league, the owners, and the players. And it's funny that we're talking about this because I've just written about it. Hopefully it will drop today. But – I think the reason you won't see NFL players, any NFL players following the lead of the NBA players who decided to boycott a game is that for the first time, I think since um, Colin Kaepernick took a knee, I think players feel like their voices are being heard by owners. Um, If you look around the league now, you see teams taking action to support some of these causes that are important to players. Just yesterday we saw, the Broncos announced certain things. We saw the 49ers announce certain things that the organizations are doing, not just the players themselves. And so from that standpoint, I think that, that um, the, the league and the owners have done a 180. Now I'm not here to say that, that the owners agree, all of the owners agree with everything that the players are fighting for. Um, but I think that they are, are now more receptive and, and understanding um, that this is not going to go away and that if they try and take on these players at this moment, it is going to create even more problems for them. Because as Alexander Madison said to me, he's a backup running back with the, with, um, the Vikings. He said four years ago, players felt as they feel now, but they were afraid to step out and take a stand with cap. And he said, you were afraid of being fined. You were afraid of being disciplined or you were afraid of being released. And he said, the difference now is that there's strength in numbers. And he said, everyone is together. So if you find one of us, you find all of us. If you, fi- if you discipline one of us, you discipline all of us. And if you release one of us, you release all of us. And what does that mean? That means, for instance, if a Jerry Jones were to take action against a player, and we know that two years ago he said anyone who demonstrates during the anthem would not play. If he were to take action against the player today, I think you would see players on other teams react to that and not just leave those Cowboy players out on an island. And, and that's extremely different from where we were two, three years ago, even four years ago. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jim, I want to stick with you because obviously one of the issues that um, 
um, that the NFL really, uh, I should say NFL ownership, I should be very specific with my language here. NFL ownership really, um, freaked out when it came to, uh, the reaction of the president of the United States. Um, when it, when it came to this stuff, obviously, um, it's a, it's a certainly a wedge issue, a cultural war issue. The, um, the owners, I think, were uh, were worried that the reaction from the public would be such that uh, attendance would be down, uh, viewership would be down. And so we find ourselves at this place again. And I wonder, you know, we are in a polarized country, so you can't get people to agree on butter, let alone, you know, NFL players doing stuff. But do you think the climate is different now that when the – griddle starts to get hot the nfl owners will stand behind their players if if players are indeed uh or if players are indeed showing that this is very very important to them this idea of activism um i don't think they have a choice richard to be honest with you i think players now feel so empowered and and believe that they are on the right side of history and they want change that I don't think there's any going back now. So that is why we have seen, for instance, Jerry Jones now say that there will not be repercussions um, against players if they decide to demonstrate during the anthem. He's been forced to walk that back. And again, I just think players have found their voice. They have realized their power. They see what players in other leagues are doing now and, and they feel a sense of responsibility as well. I had this conversation with Kevin Byard the other day, the safety for the Titans, where he talked about drawing inspiration and drawing power from seeing what the Milwaukee Bucks did and some of the change that that, that created in terms of leading other teams to boycott a game after the shooting of Jake, Jacob Blake. So um, I, I don't think it matters if it gets hot again. Um, or in my mind, what I, I don't think – that we will see the the owners crack down on the players again um, because we're in a different time and a different climate. And, and I believe in my heart that these players now um, view themselves as partners here and not as employees. If I could jump in real quick, if I could go ahead you know, to that, to that point. I mean, one reason why Jerry Jones, probably acquiesced is who, who have been the two most outspoken Dallas Cowboys on some of these social injustice issues, Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott. Right. Is he going to dare try to punish them or speak out against them? Cause if they sit, that's basically a forfeit for that week. Okay. So this is where the players are understanding as Jim keeps talking about their influence and power. And you look at the prominent voices that are speaking out right now. Okay. Colin Kaepernick, when he did it four years ago, he ended up being the starting quarterback for a terrible team. But you didn't hear the premier players like you are now with Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers and, and Jared Goff and even a rookie like Joey Burrow coming in um, and sounding off. Or Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback down at Clemson, sounding off. You didn't have that back then. So now these coaches, even going to the NCAA level, are having to reassess um, what – you know, what they may want to publicly say or how they handle themselves because there's a, there's a far greater awareness of influence among these athletes. Steve, I want to stick with you. Um, we're entering, obviously, unprecedented territory with starting the NFL season in the middle of a, of a pandemic. The attendance at games will be significantly reduced. Um, we're taping this uh, on the day of the NFL season opener, Chiefs, Texans. If you had to guess at the moment, Steve, and I realized that there's so many variables, uh, so even your own sort of uh, guesswork could change. But where do you see the popularity of the NFL this year uh, in relation to, to, to years where we don't have some of these unprecedented things? Oh, I think it's going to be through the roof. I, I think you're going to see mm. some of the largest television ratings and, and some of the most active fantasy football um, activity you've ever seen. I mean, people are, have been starving for this. I mean, it's there's no fans, but it's you know we're, we're at appointment programming. See, the NBA and Major League Baseball and MLS and the WNBA and and Premier League, they had their seasons broken apart by this. 
the NFL is starting on schedule. It's 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 behaving the way it normally has behaved. So we're in kind of our appointment, you know, appointment viewing, appointment fandom schedule. So I, I think the ratings are going to be insane, especially because the sixty-five to seventy-five thousand people who normally be at stadiums aren't going to be there. So they're going to be in front of their TVs, you know, their their screens, whatever. However, they're watching the games, following all the stuff as well. So I, I think it's it's I'd be stunned if there was a ratings dip or anything like that. And, and on that point too, and, and you know, we're, to go back to the previous question, some of these owners, whereas before they, they, they were so aligned with their diehard fans are starting to realize maybe following the example of NASCAR, like some of the stances we're taking may alienate some of those longtime fans, but you know what? It may open the door for some new fans and that's the one thing we've been hearing owners in all sports scream is that they've got to get a younger generation of fans watching. So maybe some of the steps they're taking with some of the social justice initiatives and things like that could open the door for some of that great 18 to 35 demographic they're always aiming to get to hop on board and to really feel part of things as well. Jim, before, uh, you know, before Richard, we this, go ahead, Jim. This, this, no, that's a great point that Steve makes at the end because the argument that I used to make back four years ago and three years ago was, if the NFL um, did lose fans, my question is: Are you going to play chess or are you going to play checkers? Are you playing for the short game or are you playing for the long game? If you are going to respond to skittish sponsors or loud fans at this moment, do you jeopardize losing? that young demographic, which will be your next wave of fans going forward. And what we saw three or four years ago was that the NFL reacted and said, what happens now is more important than what happens later. And I think now when you see the demonstrations taking place, not just across the country, but across the globe, I think that the NFL is realizing that this is our next group generation of fans. And if we want to retain them, we do have to be on the right side of history and we do have to be receptive to what their concerns are. And so I think now um, the NFL in essence is getting a do-over. It's getting a mulligan. It blew it four years ago, three years ago with Colin and the players who were protesting by um, trying to silence them by rewriting the anthem policy, even though they didn't enforce it. Um, but they get a do-over now because the climate in the country and the world really has changed to where people have awakened to what's really going on as it relates to police brutality against people of color and systemic racism. I want to, uh, before we before we conclude, I do want to ask you some questions about things that are going on the field because, um, you know, you're both longtime uh, NFL uh, writers and analysts and, you know, know the league about as good as anybody. Um, so this is for either uh, uh, of you guys. Um, I wonder, do you, on the field, do you see any similarities um, with uh, Brady going to Tampa Bay uh, in relation to when Favre went to Minnesota. It feels to me that Brady Bay is bigger. Uh, it just it just feels like a bigger story. But you know, I do remember how big the the Favre thing was. But you know, we have all these obviously young, exciting quarterbacks like Mahomes and and uh, Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson. Um, but you also have Jim this like unbelievable story of maybe the greatest quarterback, maybe the greatest football player in the history of the league moving to a new team this year. Like that, generally speaking. Uh, does not happen in sports. And if you're the NFL, I, I think you have to be overjoyed because it's it makes the Bucks like it to me, like every single one of their games feels like a national game this year. <laughs> um, no, there's no question that, that, that there will be a following to see how things play out with Tom down in uh, Tampa. But not just Tom in Tampa. I think people are interested as well to see what happens with New England without Brady. There had right. always been this discussion about who made, who made the Patriots? Was it Belichick or was it Brady? And to some degree, we will find out now, or, or I shouldn't say we will find out, but people will make up their minds now one way or the other, even though I think they both made each other. Um, so no question that, that Tom going down to, to Tampa is one of the big stories um, this year. But you know this, Richard, with the NFL, there are so many storylines to every season that makes it so interesting and so compelling. And, that's just one of them. And to be frank with you, um, 
it seems way down the list right now with everything that's going on, all the other things that the NFL is dealing with right now. And so hopefully once we do get into the start of the season, um, we'll start to focus more on that on football than everything else that's happening right now. Steve, you covered the league for a long time. Um, I think there's a great argument to, to be made that uh, um, in terms of sort of, you know, let's just be honest. The NFL markets itself through quarterbacks. I think the reason the ratings went back up is because the game became more offensive. You had all these like uh, interesting quarterbacks uh, putting up uh, phenomenal numbers. The league protects offense more than defense. But I wonder if just in your years covering the league, you know, between Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, and uh, Deshaun Watson with Drew Brees and Tom Brady, two surefire Hall of Famers still around. Um, is is this the best? Like, where would this year in terms of sort of quarterbacks rank for you, Steve, sort of in your years of covering the sport in terms of depth, interest, quality, et cetera? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I think it's the best because I think because of the quarterback play, more teams will have an opportunity to, to get to the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, before it was always, okay, the Patriots because of Brady, and there's really nobody in the AFC except for maybe the Steelers, maybe the Ravens. Um, and, and that was probably it for years. And, and now because Brady is now in Tampa, and because, I mean, a quarterback, I mean, that you just you, you didn't speak about that everyone glosses over. I mean, Russell Wilson. Oh, yeah. The Seahawks, yeah I, mean, I always gloss I mean, over like, him. <laughs> right. I mean, so, so, so they've got an opportunity because of him, even though you look at their roster on paper saying, what are they doing even competing for a division title? And, and so the fact that there is so much depth across the board, I mean, and, and let's not, you know, let's, let's look at the fact. Joey Burrow is going to a Cincinnati team. Yes, they had the first overall pick. That cupboard is not there. He's not going to some, you know, awful – franchise that's two years away from being two years away i mean he they, they could win some games this year they might not get to the playoffs because that division is brutal but you just kind of look at the pipeline of young quarterbacks coming up you know Tua Tungo Vailoa down in miami i just again i, I just think uh, there's very few teams right now i think who are just you know on the clock because of quarterback play i mean you look at chicago what's going on there you look at jacksonville and you say okay there's two teams that are on the clock for the draft next year but then you go around to the rest of the league, and you're like, okay, who else has got a scrub quarterback? You don't find one. I mean, you really don't find one. And I think in previous years, you could probably say there were eight or nine teams each year where you're like, they're not going anywhere because their quarterback just doesn't get it. Jim, uh, as we let you go, give me one team that people may not see coming but you think is going to be a real factor this year. Well, the the easy answer for me to, would be to say a team like Arizona with all of the changes that, it, that it's made. And if Kyler Murray can take that next step from year one to year two, as Lamar Jackson did last year, um, I think they'll be in the mix. But the team that I talk about most is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, we seem to have overlooked the fact that they went 8-8 eight and eight last year with some of the worst quarterback play we have seen in recent league history. You know, Ben Roethlisberger only played six quarters last year to start the season before he had the elbow injury to sideline them. And yet what that forced them to do was to grow up, to mature more quickly than maybe they would have, particularly on defense, where now they are back to playing the type of football defensively that we're accustomed to seeing from the Steelers. You look at them offensively now, Ben Roethlisberger comes back. He appears to be healthy. He's leaner. He has put in the time, as you can see, physically. And he has a cast around him that is extremely talented. So for me, um, if I were to pick an AFC favorite right now to go to the Super Bowl, I would say it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. Wow. I didn't see that coming. What about you, Steve? Same question. Yeah, my, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go to uh, to the NFC. And mine's the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, I know the Saints and the Bucks clearly are the trendy picks in the South. But frontline talent, the Falcons are right there with everybody else. It's the top teams in the NFL. And I think, you know, the way they finished last year after Raheem Morris moved back to the defense, started calling plays, and now he's a defensive coordinator. And some of the changes they made to their staff, adding Dante Fowler as a pass rusher, the Falcons are a team no one's really talking about right now. And if they stay healthy, that's the thing. They're, they're frontline talent, right? They do not have depth just at just about any other position. But they're frontline talent. If they stay healthy, 
they are going to be a factor coming out of the NFC. Who's the? Can you say who your next guest is on Huddle and Flow, Steve? Or is that a secret? Oh no! Well, we're 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 still working on some things based on how things shake out week one. But we are going to get the goat, the NFL goat, and the HBCU goat, Jerry Rice, who will be joining us on episode two. Nice. All right. Uh, and that is the correct answer when when people ask who is the greatest football player of all time. <laughs> um, all right, Steve, Steve Weich and Jim Trotter are reporters for NFL Media, where, again, as I said, you see them often on uh, the NFL Network. And elsewhere, they co-host a new podcast, Huddle and Flow. Steve, how bad did I screw that up? Uh, nailed no it. one will ever. Nailed it. No one will. Bingo. No one will ever. No one will ever know that I called it hustle and flow in a previous uh, <laughs> in, in a previous taping until now because I've just given it up. They co-host a new podcast, Huddle and Flow, uh, which uh, is based on their experiences as two black men with forty plus years combined covering the NFL. Uh, Ron Rivera was their first guest. Jerry Rice will be their second guest. Uh, again, if you're an NFL fan, this will obviously be destination listening. Um, Steve and Jim, uh, I got great admiration for your careers. Thank you uh, so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast and uh, and continued success with the podcast. Uh, my sense is that uh, you're going to get a uh, some nice uh, nice audience with that. So best of luck with that, and thanks again for joining me. Appreciate you, Richard. Thank, Thank you, Richard. You. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all right as i said at the top kavitha davidson uh not only my colleague the athletic the host and editorial director for the lead which is the athletics daily podcast she's also an alum of ESPN and Bloomberg. Jessica Luther is a well-known sports investigative reporter and author in the space based out of Austin. She is the co-host of the Burn It Down podcast, which has been featured in this podcast. And the reason they are here is they are the co-authors of Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of a Modern Fan. And I'm pleased to be joined by Kavitha Davidson, and Jessica Luther. Uh, Kavitha, I will start with you. Jessica, please follow Kavitha on this. Why did you write this book? Um, you know, it's funny. We, Jessica and I found each other in this like very tight-knit community of women sports writers on Twitter. Um, we actually had never met in person um, until we had signed a book deal together. Um, but, you know, there's this there's, there's just this common experience of being a woman who loves sports and also a woman who covers sports for a living um, where, you know, it's, it's just immediately clear that sports is not a space that a lot of people think is meant for us. So I think it was around the Super Bowl that, you know, we, we kept seeing these like really condescending guides come up in like various like echelons of sports media, you know, like geared toward women who clearly like they don't think um, love sports or know anything about them. So it was, you know, those kinds of guides that were like how to talk to your boyfriend about sports or how to throw the perfect 
uh, Super Bowl party and also talk to your boyfriend about sports, you know, that kind of thing. And we were just so frustrated at it, right? Like, we were like, this is clearly not talking to us, but we exist here, right? And there are lots of women like us. And there are lots of people who are sports fans who sports media doesn't always cater to. So the initial idea for the book was supposed to be a very kind of snarky take on that, you know, how to, how to talk, how, how, how to deal with your boyfriend when he doesn't know anything about sports and that kind of thing. Um, and thankfully we, we took the idea to our, our publisher Casey at, um, at the university of Texas press who guided us in a much more um, clear and level headed and uh, serious direction than the initial idea. Jessica. Yeah. And I think these are issues that Kavitha and I have long been thinking about as fans of sport ourselves. So it makes sense, I think, in our career trajectories, we we do similar work, we think about the world in similar ways that this would be the book that we would come together on. It just, it sort of made organic sense. Jessica, I want to stick with you. One of the, um, you know, one, one of the themes of this book, and it's an important one, is fans reconciling their conscience with their fandom. And I'm interviewing you guys on the day of the NFL season opener. And the NFL sort of to me would be exhibit A in trying to reconcile um, your conscience with fandom. Uh, you know, I certainly watched the NFL since I was a kid. I, 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 I enjoy watching the sport. It's a great television sport, by the way. But when I step away from any kind of fandom, you know, I'm I think smart enough to realize it's a violent, dangerous game. And like you're sort of encouraging or supporting people who um, years later from this violence will not be in good health. That's just the reality of it. And so I wonder if you could just sort of get into that exploration. And that's just one little element I mentioned with football. You could probably find some of these, uh, some of these issues in almost, in almost every sport where, um, you know, if, if we sort of step back from it, we, we can find some things that are really bad about sport. Yeah, absolutely. I think football and other sports that are particularly brutal are are hard in a in a specific way. And I think Kavitha always says this, so I'm I'm co-opting her line. Sorry, Kay. But the there's a lot of stuff in this book, problems in sport, we feel are fixable. They are long-term systemic problems. They take it will take a long time and a lot of work to do that. But what do we do about the brutality of these sports? And as you said, the long-term effects of what they are doing to the bodies and the brains of these players, because that is a fundamental element of the game. People watch because it's brutal, not in spite of it, right? And so I think, I feel like this is the hardest one to answer because you kind of have to just sit with the fact that the the reason you're watching is because of what's going to happen to these people. And then really, you don't have to deal with that as a fan. More so now, I feel like than in my past memory, we have more and more stories. And we are hearing more and more from these players and, and their families in particular about what this means down the line. But I do feel like we focus so hard on the professional level and there's a way that we can justify that away that these people are adults and they're making decisions on their own and that's their decision and we don't have any part of that decision that they've made. What can we do about it? We're just watching. Uh, the thing that really gets me when I think about football uh, is our children, <laughs> that there are millions of children who play this sport in, in this country and what it is that we as a society are saying about um, how much we care about the youth when when this is something that we won't even really take up. This isn't even a discussion we have. I don't have a good answer for you is, is sort of what I'm saying here. Um, I don't know if you can reconcile it. And I think part of being a sports fan is sitting with that discomfort and 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 kind of figuring out how to reconcile that for yourself. No, no, I think that's an honest answer because I don't think you can reconcile it. You know, one of the things that Jessica was saying, Kavitha, um, and this is this is far more of a, a you know of a of a 2020 immediate issue is again when I when I start to sort of think about reconciling stuff and I wonder how you feel about this. Um, I, I'm with Jessica in that if you're a professional athlete, you're an adult, and you make a choice, and 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 most importantly, you are compensated for that choice. If you're playing 
uh, basketball or football or baseball right now, you are compensated for the decision to put yourself in harm's way when it comes to the coronavirus. What what is incredibly frustrating to me is at the college level, where um, presidents, in theory, athletic directors, coaches are supposed to be charged with things that are in the best interest of their of their athletes, and these are athletes who are not compensated. And what I've found, and it's a bit of a cynical take, is that there is <laughs> there seems to be uh, more focus on protecting the people in the crowd than the thought of protecting these uh, unpaid workers who are producing millions of uh, of dollars for universities. But it gets back into my original question for Jessica Kavitha that um, if you're honest with yourself, there are a lot of things that you sort of close your eyes to when it comes to sports to be a fan. I mean, it's definitely true. That's the that's the central premise of the book, right? And I, w- I will just push back a little bit. There is obviously the huge difference between pro and college in that, um, you know, in pro, like we said, these are adults. They're making their own decisions. They're also getting paid. That's a huge difference. But there are also, you know, just for years, those decisions have to be based off of knowledge and, and based off of having all of the information. And there were just so many, there were just decades where the NFL wasn't making the information about how dangerous football actually is, uh, to people's brains and bodies available. So, you know, there, you know, that, that is, and, and the more that, the more information we get about that, the more we see professional football players retiring early after they've made their money in order to preserve their bodies, right? But you're right, on the, on the college level, it, it, it sits much worse with me because these are kids and we do kind of tell ourselves that these coaches are supposed to supplant this kind of father figure role in their lives. And, and I think it's fair to ask whether they actually have the best interest of these kids at, at heart, because, you know, especially with something like coronavirus going on right now, you know, we, I don't, I don't think that we are seeing anywhere near what, you know, what care we would see if these were actually their kids. And that dichotomy, that, that disparity is something that I'm extremely aware of. When, when I was at Bloomberg, we did a poll around the time that, you know, the NFL had to start reckoning with, um, its, its concussion and CTE and brain trauma problems. And, you know, the, the poll asked very simple questions. And one of them was, would you want your kid to play your child to play football, peewee football? And overwhelmingly, people who, made six figures or more, had higher than a college education, you know, were, were white and, and, you know, relatively wealthy, said, no, we would not want our kids to play football. The next question was, do you still want to watch football? And those same people overwhelmingly said yes. So I don't want my kid to play football, but I really want someone else's kid to be beaten up or exposed to a virus or something for my own entertainment. And that's part of a broader issue that we have in society, right? Who, who the essential workers are. Like, we won't go to the grocery store without a mask on, but we expect people to be serving us food, right? Um, you know, and, and those are those are the kinds of dilemmas that we really try to tackle, um, no pun intended, in, in this book. And and they are really hard. I don't I don't think that there is a singular answer to them, um, especially when it comes to amateur or college levels. I want to go to you, Jessica. I eventually sort of want to uh, uh, end the conversation on sort of a, a long examination of uh, – you guys have a chapter in the book, Consuming Sports Media, even if you don't look like the people on television. That's obviously particularly really interesting to me given this podcast. But you do talk about um, – uh, you guys had it as, I think, forgiving the doper you love. Uh, and you're in Austin, Lance Armstrong country, speaking of dopers. Um, and so I wonder in your examination of this, um, you know, I'm someone who loves the Olympics, uh, covered a lot of them. But like the reality is like you do go to the Olympics and you close your eyes to the, 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 the very likelihood that more people than not are doping at those Olympics. You know, a lot of athletes and, and federations can make the argument, well, if everybody's doing it, you know, we, we have to do it to stay competitive. But in a sense, you are, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, it's a bit of a little Alice in Wonderland. You know, you sort of close your eyes and you, you love the athletic achievements, but, you know, you don't want to know the Icarus part of those uh, athletic achievements. And I wonder, at least from your perspective, when you guys were writing that and thinking about that, just sort of how you saw a lot of people with their fandom uh, on those who are at least based on the rules cheating the game. Yeah. Doping is so fascinating. And we frame that chapter around Lance Armstrong. And that was certainly, I've lived in Austin for 
oh God, I'm, I feel old saying this now, but like 20 years. And so I lived through a lot of that. And I, with that chapter in particular, I went in very righteous and and what I was feeling about doping. I, I felt like I understood it, that there are rules that you either follow them or you don't, and you either cheat or you don't. And it's very clear. And I actually came away, that chapter in particular really pushed me to come to really admit that sports are made up, that they're super arbitrary things, and that doping is as much an arbitrary thing as anything else in sport. And it's really hard to put your finger on it. And And I want to be clear that there's certainly things that people do to their bodies that are dangerous. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for any of this, actually. But I'm just saying, I understand that there are lines that have to be drawn to say you can't do these dangerous things. But it's not actually really clear what is doping and why certain things are counted as doping and other things are not, and who's making those decisions and how the punishments are actually uh, given out. And there, it's pretty, as I said, arbitrary uh, in lots of ways. And I agree, like, what happened with Russia at Sochi, that kind of systemic cheating Like, I am against that. But I do think that doping really, when you look at it and you try to define it and say what it is, that it actually really, it's really, really hard to do that. And so what is actually cheating? And how do we figure that out as fans of sport, as people watching? Uh, And I don't have any, I don't have a good answer for that anymore. I actually became way more forgiving. And uh, after doing the research for that. Like one thing that really got me was looking at Balco and my memories of everything around Balco. I didn't remember at all that football players had been implicated. Like my entire memory of Balco was baseball. And so I was shocked on some level to find out how many football players were actually involved. And I think that says so much about what we as a society care about when it comes to sports and doping. Um, We don't Like, it's pretty rare that we talk about it in football and we're obsessed with baseball. And that, I think, says a lot about how we imagine which games are pure, which ones are clean. Uh, Like we just talked about with football, we turn away a lot. We we, we look away a lot with football, and and I feel like that's just as true. So I don't don't even think cheating when it comes to doping is is that clear cut. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think you're totally right. I think that uh, people romanticize baseball, and that's why they have their issues with doping and they don't romanticize football as much perhaps because of the violence of the sport. And then they, they almost look at it as, well, you have to do whatever you can to get stronger, et cetera. It doesn't make any sense, but that would be my sort of quick take on this. Yeah. I just want to say, I totally agree. And one of the things that I will say when Lance Armstrong said, I had to dope because everyone else did on some level, he was right. They were all doping. Like the amount of cyclists who were kicked out on the sport around that time is staggering when you look at the numbers. And I do sort of wonder what it is we actually, we as fans actually expect of these athletes in these moments. Um, and I, I, that, I don't want to like be pro Lance Armstrong, uh, really in any way, but I do feel like what was he supposed to do if what we expect as fans is for these people to win. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. I have far less issues with Lance Armstrong actually doping than I do with him being an incredible asshole when he was denying his doping and hurting people. Well, that's really that's really what it is, right? I mean, we can also throw A-Rod into that boat, right? Like, I think we all were very willing to forgive the first time around, but the way you handled it was completely wrong, right? Right, exactly. You've, you've At least for me, in my sort of estimation of both those guys, I think you've nailed it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, Kavitha, I want to um, get into this a little bit. Um, you know, we all work in a profession um, where, uh, and you guys certainly point this out in the book, um, the stats are overwhelming. Uh, in 2017, the Women's Media Center found that 89% of sports coverage is written by men. 
which has a massive impact on how stories are written. Uh, you know, I'm not going to obviously escape this. I'm a white male um, who's worked at two very, very uh, prestigious sports outlets. So, you know, I, I'm sort of a, I, I'm a poster child for, for, for privilege on that and recognize that when I have walked into any kind of sporting event, um, people look like me. Generally speaking, for most of my career, it's changed a little bit, thankfully. But generally speaking, that's the case. So I want to start with you, Kavitha. Um, when you've covered stuff, um, have you always felt like an outsider because of your gender? Because of my gender, because of my race, because my parents weren't born in this country, you know, kind of all of the above, right? Like I, every woman will tell you that they are, that it is extremely apparent when you are the only woman in a press box or in um, a post-game press conference, or, or you're the only female voice who's asking a question in a scrum, right? Um, I, I won't say I've actually been extremely privileged in the people that I've worked for that I have never directly felt um, biased, uh, a bias against me from the, from my editors or from my publishers. But it, it is, it is something that you encounter on a day to day basis. And I've encountered it from my readers, I would say most, most, most of all. You know, I do remember getting, I wrote a column for Bloomberg on the day after Derek Jeter's last game. And it was a very like, but it was a very, it was, a, it was probably the least controversial thing I've ever written, which is basically on the day after Derek Jeter's last game, Derek Jeter is great. Derek Jeter meant a lot to New Yorkers, basically. And I, I had a line in there where I said, you know, my, I'm a daughter of Indian immigrants and, Derek Jeter, um, you know, was the poster child of this Yankee team that really ingratiated me to sports. That is the reason that I'm a sports fan, let alone a sports writer. And I remember getting a comment on um, on that column that was, well, Kavitha, now I understand why I disagree with everything you write. You're 25 years old. You're the daughter of Indian immigrants. How did you even get a job writing about American sports other than affirmative action? And that is a mentality that I have felt geared towards me from readers more so than my bosses since ever since I've been in this industry. But even if you're not in the industry itself, I think that a lot of women, a lot of people of color, a lot of gay people, you know, if you're, if you're not basically a white cis hetero man, um, are, are made to feel like, like you're an outsider or you're an interloper in this space. Um, and I think that, you know, the representation, like you said, Richard, the people who are writing these stories, the people who are presenting the stories, the people who are even choosing the stories that are worthwhile to tell really shape how we frame and how we view this entire space that really should be for all of us. Jessica, you want to add to that? Yeah, I definitely have experienced lots of pushback from readers in particular. And the one that it's sort of like Kavitha's where you're like, why this? I, I wrote a jokey post about Lane Kiffin years ago. Like, how is he still coaching? And it was a joke post. Like, it was clearly in humor. And I got so many comments from angry men that were like, what are you mad because he won't sleep with you? And I was just like, what? Like, I'm not allowed to make fun of Lane Kiffin. Everyone makes fun of Lane Kiffin. But my, I mean, the response was just wild to me. I will say it's so interesting. Last year, I was very fortunate and I got to go to France and I saw the tail end of the French Open and then I was there for the first two weeks of the Women's World Cup. And I don't do a ton of press boxes because of the work that I do. Uh, but the the French Open, I was so aware of myself when I was in the press area. It was just so many old white men. Uh, there were very few women, almost no women of color. And then I went over to the World Cup. I mean, there was one day where I literally walked from one place to the other. And I was pretty shocked at how much the press for the Women's World Cup were a bunch of white men. Uh, I think in large part, and this is a whole other thing, is that we don't really have an infrastructure for uh, long-term coverage of women's sports. So it was a lot of people who cover soccer in general, just moving over into the women's sphere for these for this month-long competition. But you definitely feel it. Like as soon as you walk in, you're like, oh, I am not the same as almost anyone else here. And I knew basically most of the women that were covering the Women's World Cup and we were all just, you know, friends and would stand in our little circle. So, you know, it's hard to explain what that's like until you're in it. But it is something that is just a feature of how all of this is set up um, in sports media at this time. And I've certainly experienced, as Kavitha said, 
trying to get stories published that I was told over and over again because they were about girls or women's and women in sport that like no one would care. Uh, and lo and behold, once I finally did get it published after months and months of work just to get it out, people cared a lot. And that is so frustrating that every single time you feel like you have to fight to say like, no, people really do read this stuff. And, and I just feel like, I don't know how that changes until the people in charge actually care enough to change something about it. And uh, that can be such an exhausting, like, I feel exhausted thinking about the next time I'm going to have to do all of that work again. Uh, Kavitha, one of the, um, one of the comments in your book that really stood out to me, uh, you know, she's, uh, She's one of our great colleagues at The Athletic from Rhiannon Walker said, you know, there's nothing that makes me happier than seeing someone else in a press box that looks like me, black, a woman, LGBTQ and young. But frankly, it's a very rare event when I find any of these any of those categories that overlap with one another. Um, and Jessica got into this a little bit. It, you know, for a long time in sports media, um, you know, the sort of talked about, well, the numbers have to get better. The numbers are awful. And talking about sort of uh, numbers when it comes to gender or race. Um, and sort of, I feel like for my entire career, I've sort of been hearing this and, and hearing about how horrible the numbers are. And now there's sort of even an argument, well, the entire industry is cratering. So you just have to worry about jobs and not representation. But it strikes me, and again, this is one person's opinion. I, I'm not sure this is ever going to change until there are different people in the power of management hiring, because it still seems even in 2020, it's better. But generally speaking, in 2020, people still sort of hire um, who they're comfortable with, or perhaps who they look like. You know, we see that in professional sports as well. So if the goal ultimately is to have a more diverse group of people covering sports, writing about sports, um, in your opinion, how can that change? I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I don't think that that's limited to sports journalism or media in general, right? When we look at diversity in every industry, in, in sports, when we look at, you know, coaches being hired in the NBA, um, you know, any kind of diversity um, in, in any industry, it all starts at the top. It starts with who is making those decisions. And, and you're exactly right. There is, there is networking bias. It doesn't necessarily need to be a nefarious thing. It's not like all white men who are in power are only trying to hire white men, but they happen to only really know other white men and they're comfortable hiring them. Um, and the other side of that is also when when the room is all one type of person and you are not that type of person, it can feel very hostile even when it's not. So what you end up what ends up happening is you have a lot of women and a lot of people of color leaving the industry, leaving sports media a couple a few years into into their you know into their tenures because it can be it can just be too hard. Um, I, I'll always remember like this wasn't something that you know I was. Uh, this wasn't something that made me want to quit my job, but just as an anecdote, you know, I'll, I'll always remember when I was covering the 2015 NBA All-Star Game at Madison Square Garden, and I was very aware that I was the only woman in press in the in the press row because you know we were all with our headphones on and and uh, and in front of our laptops and basically just looking down, typing, typing, typing away, and then suddenly you notice the entire press row, like stand up or, you know, raise their, their heads from their from their laptops and stare at the floor. And it was because the Nick City dancers took the court. And, you know, just like small things like that, where you're really aware just that the atmosphere around you isn't built, isn't set up for you, um, can cause a lot of people to actively leave the industry. But, you know, I think you're right. When the people at the top, the people who are making hiring decisions become more diverse, that's the only way that we can really, that we can, you know, fix that. The the only way that I actually like recognize that trickle down is a thing. <laughs> Jessica, I want to, uh, I want to finish with you guys on this. One of the things that, again, it's sort of just my thought, but I'm far more interested in yours. The, the way I feel like this can change, um, what just Kavitha was talking about is ultimately ownership of content. And like one of the things I'm, um, I'm really impressed by is that, um, you and your um, you and your group at the Burn It Down podcast, like you created your own content, you own your own content, you have you decide what is on that content. I, I don't know how financially successful like the podcast is, but it really doesn't matter to me because like the point of it is ultimately that to me is the way 
that like things can change when when people become their own um, uh, cr- producers, creators, and owners of content. You certainly see this with athletes like LeBron James and Kevin Durant, et cetera. They're creating their own production companies so they can own their own content and, and create their own income. And I wonder if if you sort of agree with that premise that, you know, in some ways, I'm not sure legacy media is going to be the place where this changes, but it might have to be from just individuals who change the game um, by creating their their own media outlets. Yeah, I yes, obviously, I uh, live the example that you're talking about. Burn it all down is we're at three and a half years into it now, and yeah, we control it completely at this point. It is not. Um, something that we get paid for at this point. We do have some funding, so we're able to um, hire people to help us out. But it is a lot of labor of love. But so much of what is important about it for us is that there is, we are the editor, we're in editorial control completely of the content. And that means a lot to us. And is one of the reasons that um, we haven't partnered with anyone at all to this point, because we don't want to give that up because it's, it feels rare in in the business. I will say I'm a freelancer. I've always, the, the entire seven years that I've been doing this, I've been a freelancer, but that's in part because I'm married to someone with a steady paycheck and I'm able to do that. But part of the reason I do that is so that I have a lot more control over what it, um, who I'm working with, who I'll work with again, all those sorts of things. And I think that you're right that we are seeing so many different examples of people within media trying to make their own space. I think social media allows that in some sense. You can put up videos, you can create your own content. Substack is a really interesting idea. I don't know how long it will be around, but it's certainly given people um, a platform unlike we've seen in a long time. And then, you know, we have like Defector Media, which is the old Deadspin crew. Most of them, um, they own it. It's going to come, I, it's going to launch any day now, my understanding. It, it'll be interesting to see about these interventions within media, especially as legacy media is struggling so much. And I do want to say in the chapter on sports media in the book, it's it's a different chapter than the rest of the the great majority of it. It's kind of an oral history of a ton of different voices from people who are marginalized within sports media talking about a whole host of things from their own perspective. And one reason we wanted to do that was to highlight, to show people that they, these people are out there. So we give you all the dire stats, but then we say there are all these people from marginalized communities doing this work and you can find them. You just have to seek them out sometimes in places that you maybe wouldn't have thought of. Uh, and, and that's in part to give fans that nudge, like go find them. They're doing the work. Kavitha, is there anything you wanted to add before we close up here? Um, just that, you know, it, it, those voices do, do exist. And, and like Jessica said, it is harder to seek them out. Um, Jessica always makes the analogy that it's similar to, um, you know, there being so many fans of women's sports, but it's just harder to find them. Um, and that's just the way that the system is built. But I'll also just add that, you know, what, what Jessica is doing at Burn It All Down and what, what people, what people accomplish when they do own their own content, it, it, it does take a certain level of courage, right? Like I could never be a freelancer. I could never host a podcast that I had to create and own myself because I need the security um, that comes along with being part of a media company. And the fact that that security can't be offered um, on a whole scale level to people to create the kind of content that Jessica and her co-host are, are creating is a problem. Like this needs to be fixed on, on all sides of, of, of the industry. So, you know, hopefully I think the hope is that, you know, we'll, we'll see, um, you know, people owning their own content and creating their own content, forcing the hand of the bigger companies. But you're right. I don't know if the future of legacy media is to have to change in the way um, that that is necessary unless they're absolutely forced to. Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther are the co-authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of a Modern Fan. You could also find um, Kavitha's work at The Athletic, where she is the host and editorial director for The Lead, which is The Athletic's daily podcast. Um, Google Jessica Luther. She's done pretty amazing work in the sports space, um, whether it's sort of in investigating 
uh, college football programs, as well as being the co-host of the Burn It Down podcast, which I highly recommend. Uh, Kavitha and Jessica, I hope the book's a, a, a great success. The, the topic's really important. And, um, and thank you so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for having us. All right, back uh, to wrap things up. My thanks to Jim Trotter, Steve Weish, Kavitha Davidson, and Jessica Luther for their um, for their time and their insight. And definitely check out Kavitha and Jessica's book. If you like these kind of conversations, uh, please head back to the archives in the Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, page on iTunes or Stitcher, etc. Prior to this show, we had Renee Paquette, who you probably better know as Renee Young, if you are a WWE fan. And um, she went pretty deep on just her experiences with um, the WWE and um, where she may head next. Um, she's always great to talk to, and that was pretty... Um, pretty revealing interview at least i thought she's always honest renee so if you're a wrestling fan um check that one out uh before that a long discussion with anthony Krupe and austin carp on the nba ratings and viewership which has obviously become a topic that uh goes well beyond sports given the interest in um the president of the united states on uh on nba ratings so that's a an examination in terms of why the numbers are down whether it's a short-term issue or a long-term issue i think you'll find that uh to be an honest conversation prior to that james andrew miller who's a frequent guest on this podcast as well as um, anson carter the nbc nhl analyst and then right before that talk to uh, people who have been covering sports in the bubble holly Rowe of espn tanya ganguly of um, the la times and uh stefano fasaro of uh, espn who was in the mls bubble Head into any of the archives, uh, check out the episodes. A lot of them are what they call evergreen. I think you can still find something interesting with them, uh, even if uh, time has passed. And I know I say this all the time, but it really is true. Please leave a, a five-star review and uh, a nice note. Um, I have uh, you know people who are uh, uh, in partnership with me in this podcast, in Cadence 13, and you know bosses look at the ratings and look at the look at the comments. It, it, uh, it's a uh, it's a factor there. So um, appreciate everybody listening, uh, especially during the pandemic where your schedules have been uh, upgraded. And so uh, I hope everybody's safe and healthy out there. My thanks to uh, Sean Cherry and Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast, Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott at Cadence 13. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.